Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll sit down with renowned music photographer Paul Natkin for a wide-ranging interview about a life behind the camera. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review a revival of Sweeney Todd. And later I'll catch up with the new executive director of the League of Chicago Theaters. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. One of the world's greatest collections of popular music photographs resides on the north side of Chicago. Not in a museum or gallery, but in the home of celebrated local photographer Paul Natkin. A row of file cabinets contains thousands of photos Natkin has captured over a 40-plus year career as a music photographer. Of course, Natkin's home studio isn't open to the public, but a sampling of his best work is now available in a beautiful new coffee table book titled Natkin, The Moment of Truth. The 288-page book contains a curated selection of some of Natkin's most iconic pictures. The Rolling Stones, Prince, Mavis Staples, Dolly Parton, David Bowie, Miles Davis. These are just some of the musicians Natkin has photographed over the decades. Chances are you've probably already seen some of Natkin's work. His photos have graced countless magazine covers and are continually used in a variety of other projects. The only thing Natkin has more of than photos is stories. Fantastic tales collected over the past four decades that involve going to concerts almost every night, jumping on tour buses with bands at a moment's notice, or traveling the country with the Rolling Stones as their tour photographer. I tried to touch on as many as possible during my recent interview with Natkin. I visited the Chicago native at his home studio for a wide-ranging conversation about the life of a music photographer. So I thought we'd start at the very beginning, and it's a pretty interesting story of how you came to photography. We can attribute that in part to your dad? The story behind the story is my father was a photographer during World War II, and he got out of the Army, came back to Chicago, became a freelance photographer, did a lot of really cool stuff. I was born in 1951, and at that point he quit photography and got into the building business because my mother didn't like the fact that he was traveling all the time as a photographer. Mm -hmm. So the whole time I was growing up, I just knew him as a builder that had this room in the basement with sinks and chemicals and stuff that he never used. In 1971, he kinda, not officially, but he kinda went bankrupt in the building business wasn't making any money, so he decided, okay, if he's not gonna make any money, he might as well not make money being a photographer than not make money being a builder. And one of the people he knew was, at that point, the publicist for this basketball team that nobody cared about in the city of Chicago called the Chicago Bulls. That you could walk up to the box office five minutes before a playoff game started and buy like a fifth row seat. So he called his friend Ben, and Ben said, yeah, we can't afford to pay you anything, but..." If you want to come to the games and shoot pictures, if you get something good, we'll buy it from you. So at that point, I was 20 years old, living at home with my parents, having no idea whatsoever what to do with my life. He went to the game. He came home that night, 11 o'clock at night, and he told me this story that included four parts. Part number one, free parking. Part number two, get into the game for free. Part number three, free hot meal in the press box. And part number four, best seats in the house because you're sitting right on the, at the side of the court yeah. to take pictures. And the first thing I said to him was, okay, I need to become a photographer. What's fascinating is that Natkin had never shown an interest in taking pictures before. I had never held a camera in my hand in my life, ever. So he took me to the next game, and he had a spare camera. And he, right before the game, he showed me how to use it, he showed me what button to push and how to advance the film and all that stuff. And he set the camera the way it should be set, and I took a bunch of pictures. Came home, he taught me how to develop them, and they came out pretty good. So I decided, okay, this is, this is it for me. Get to go to everything for free. 
What could be better than that? Never once thinking that I'm going to make a living doing this. Right. How do you make a living having fun? You know, not many people could do that. So uh, I did that for about four years. He got tired of it and he quit, but I still had a card in my wallet that got me the free parking and, and the games for free. So I kept on going and I met all these other photographers, Chicago photographers, and they all said, well, you know, you're pretty good at this. Do you want to come and shoot a baseball game, a football game? Uh, so all of a sudden, I'm on the sidelines standing next to Walter Payton at Soldier Field. Yeah. And I'm going and taking pictures of tennis matches. And it was after photographing a local tennis match when everything changed. I was shooting a tennis tournament up in Evanston. And it was over like at 7 o'clock at night. I went back to my car. And my car was parked next to a building, a big giant building called Khan Auditorium, which is a theater. And I got in the car, put my stuff in the trunk, got in the car, started the engine, the radio was on. And there was a commercial on the radio for a concert that was taking place 10 feet away from where I was sitting, inside Con Auditorium, in a half an hour. I can't make that, there's no way I can make that up. I mean, there's no way that that could possibly have happened, but there's also no way that I can make that up. And it was this woman that I kind of heard of. I was always a music fan, so I knew music. And I'd heard of her, her name was Bonnie Raitt. And she was kind of just starting out. She was playing in Con Auditorium. So I figured I've been able to BS my way into almost any sporting event I wanted to go to. Let's see if I could do the same thing with a concert. So I shut off the engine, got out, got the stuff out of the trunk, went to the backstage door, and I made up a huge lie. Made up this lie that I'm shooting for this new magazine that nobody's ever heard of yet called Rolling Stone. And I opened the door and I got ready to give the lie to the whoever was on the other side of the door. And I walk in the door and there's a guy sitting behind a desk and he looks at me and he sees the cameras and says, oh, you're with the press. Go ahead and do what, go inside and do whatever you want. Just don't get on stage. Didn't even have a chance to use my lie, which was really good. That was one of my better lies. So that's how I got started in the music industry. I gave up sports immediately. Yeah. Not interested anymore whatsoever because sports is pretty repetitious. At this point, Natkin had found his new passion, but he still hadn't figured out how to make a living with these photos. Taking these pictures, I have no idea how to make money. So one day, this new venue called Park West opened up. And shortly after, and that was a jam venue, they were booking the shows. So I used to go there all the time. And one day I was there shooting a show, and I walked out in the lobby like halfway through the show, and this friend of mine, who's a lawyer from Detroit, was standing in the lobby with this guy. And she introduced me to the guy, and he was the art director slash photo editor of a magazine called Cream Magazine. To me, Cream was the greatest rock and roll magazine ever printed. Still, let's still say that today. Here's the portal to the, the possibilities. Right. So I immediately said to the guy, like, how do I get my pictures in your magazine? And he says, well, it's pretty easy. Well, I'll give you my number. Call me the 15th of the month, and we'll give you a list of everybody we're doing articles about. And if you have any pictures of them, send them to our office in Detroit, Birmingham, Michigan, actually. And uh, if we use them, we'll pay you, and then we'll send them back to you. So the 15th of the next month, I called him. He gave me a list. I had one band on the list, this guy named Rick Derringer. And I sent him some pictures, and two weeks later, I find out I've got a full-page color picture in Cream Magazine, which I made the astounding total of $35. So I figured, okay, I made 35 bucks, but I'm not going to be able to eat off of 35 bucks. So I got to figure out a way to sell more pictures. So I went to 7-Eleven, and I bought one each of every magazine on the newsstand. I piled them up in my living room, and I started with the top of the pile, and I looked up who the art director was, and I called him and made a deal the same way I made with this guy from Cream. Call me on a certain day. I'll tell you who we're doing articles about. If you have the picture, send them to us. And all of a sudden, a couple years later, I'm selling six or seven pictures every month to every one of these magazines. And they were it was everything from... It was Cream Circus, Hit Parader. I got in contact with a German magazine called Bravo that published like hair metal pictures like crazy okay. from that era because the Scorpions were really big. They were from Germany. Mm. I got in touch with a magazine or actually an agent in Japan and I would send them duplicate slides and I'd get checks every month for like a half a million yen, which comes out to be about $150. <laughs> But I was, my pictures were being used all over the place. And I was making sort of living, relatively okay living, 
to where I could afford rent and food and film. And, you know, I'd figured it out. I'd figured out a way to, like, earn a living. Natkin continued taking pictures. The opportunities gradually increased. But things really started to take off in the summer of 1984. And then there was a fateful month and a half of June and July of 1984, where I had sort of established myself. I knew a lot of publicists in New York, record company publicists. I shot a lot of really big shows. I got a call in the beginning of June 1984 from a Warner Brothers publicist, and she said, would you be interested in flying up to Minneapolis and shooting Prince's birthday party? And it was the week the Purple Rain came out. It was a private show. It was at the club that the movie was filmed in, First Avenue. Invitation only. And he was going to perform for an hour and a half. My first thought was, I'm going to have to go up there and fight a hundred other photographers. It's going to be like a rugby scrum. Then I figured, well, it's only a hundred dollars round trip to fly to Minneapolis. So flight, in those days, there's a flight every hour. You get a room at the Red Roof Inn by the airport in Minneapolis for like $29.95 a night. I could probably make that money back. A lot of film and processing and all that, but, you know, it's a relatively small expenditure to take a chance on. And I got up there and found out, walked up to the door, found out that I was the only photographer allowed in the venue. I have no idea why. To this day, I never asked. I don't want to make <laughs> waves. I just accepted it. Uh-huh. And I stood right in front of the stage, and I shot pictures like that. Yeah. You know, he was four feet away from me. For an hour and a half and I got home the next morning got the film processed sent it out to a bunch of magazines including one magazine being Rolling Stone who I'd done some work for in the past they called me up the next day and they said listen we love your Prince pictures we're gonna use a bunch of them there was a woman up here and she saw your Prince pictures and she's the publicist for Bruce Springsteen and Bruce is starting his tour later on this week this is like now like the second week in June starting his tour once again in Minneapolis, actually St. Paul. So I called his publicist, this woman that had seen my pictures, and she liked them. And she said, well, why don't you come up to Minneapolis and shoot the opening of Springsteen's tour? I said, no problem. It's only $100 for a ticket and hotel rooms cheap. And I went up there the day before he started the tour and she brought me into the empty venue. And he was shooting the first video he ever did, which is for the song Dancing in the Dark, which included Courtney Cox dancing on stage with him. And I had six hours of just, I was the only, there was a video crew, there was me and the E Street Band. And I just shot whatever I wanted to shoot. And then the next three nights, I shot the first three nights of the tour. I got home, processed all the film, sent it all out to magazines. Everybody started using it. And I called Bruce's publicist and said, listen, I got really great stuff, but I want to get more. And he's coming to Alpine Valley next week. This is like now the beginning of July. Mm-hmm. Um, he's doing two shows at Alpine Valley. I want to shoot those too. And she said, well, why not? No problem. So I drove up each night and drove home afterwards, and I shot two more shows. Then the first week in July, I get a call from Rolling Stone, and they say, we love your Prince pictures, we love your Springsteen pictures. We want to hire you to shoot the opening of the Jackson's Victory Tour in Kansas City, two nights at Arrowhead Stadium. So this is all one month. It's like June 7th to July 7th, and all this stuff is happening. I got like 24 hours to get ready for each of these. I said, no problem. And uh, went down there, shot two nights there, came back, sent them the pictures, you know, and I figured, okay, I've made it. This is the ultimate. (laughs) And it really did change everything because what it did was people saw my pictures in all these magazines, covers of Cream Magazine, uh, covers of rock and roll magazines all over Europe. And I started getting total access to all their acts. Like, hey, we got somebody coming to town. They're playing at the, you know, auditorium theater. Do you want to shoot? I didn't even have to call them. They were calling me. 
So the following year, Bruce went from being big to being colossal. And Newsweek decided they want to do a big article about him. The publicist called them and said, hey, there's this guy in Chicago that has some really good pictures of him. You should give him a call. And I'd worked with Newsweek a couple times, but nothing really big. It's just like made a couple hundred dollars doing an assignment for him. I sent him a bunch of pictures. And two weeks later, one of my pictures of Springsteen was on the cover of Newsweek. And that is still to this day the biggest thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. As a photojournalist, it's the biggest thing that could possibly happen. Newsweek or Time, you know, they're both pretty equal, or were. If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with renowned music photographer Paul Natkin. He's got a new book of his photos out right now. Back in the 80s, things were going great for Natkin. He had connections with every major publication, and more importantly, he was developing relationships with musicians. Another big opportunity presented itself after Natkin sent some photos to Keith Richards' management team. So the day before Thanksgiving, this is 1988, day before Thanksgiving, my phone rings. Pick up the phone, it's Keith's manager, and she says, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, well, I was going to go to my parents' house for Thanksgiving. And she said, nope, you're coming on tour with us. And she said, pack your stuff. You're going to be gone for probably a month. Get on a plane tomorrow morning, fly to Atlanta, take a cab over to the Ritz-Carlton, call me when you get here. That night I was shooting a Keith Richards show in Atlanta and then getting on a tour bus with him and his band. And I did it from coast to coast for about a month. It ended right around Christmas, middle of December. And I came back to my regular mundane life. Uh... You lived like a rock star for a month. For a month. And I'm thinking, once again, I'm thinking, okay, I can't top that. So when I got home, there was a month's worth of mail sitting in the front hallway of my house. And so the first thing I did is I saw the latest issue of Rolling Stone on the top of the pile. So I opened it up, sat down on the couch and started reading it. And in the random notes section, there was a little article that the Stones, Mickey Keith, had kind of made up because they were mad at each other. And they were going to go out on tour in 1989. So I waited a couple months. I sent the note to Keith's manager. Hey, I heard you guys are going out on the road. If you need a photographer, give me a call. Threw it in the mailbox. Never in my wildest dreams did I ever expect that to actually materialize in anything. So the tour starts, no phone calls. So I figured, okay, it was a good try. I got, I got to go on the road with Keith for a month. And about three weeks into the tour, I get a call from Keith's manager. And she says, so what are you doing tomorrow? This time I knew, and I said, well, I guess I'm coming to meet you. Where are you? <laughs> and she says, pack your stuff, get on a plane, fly to Boston, come to the Ritz-Carlton, call me when you get here, and plan on being on the road for a month. So I fly to Boston, go to the Ritz-Carlton, call a room. She gives me a room number and says, go and put all your luggage in this room. And all of a sudden, the Rolling Stones start coming out of the elevator. And we get in a van, and we go out to Foxborough Stadium, where the Patriots used to play. They might still play there for all I know. I and, uh, and I'm shooting my first Rolling Stones shoot. And then the show ends and the entourage gets in a series of six vans <laughs> that are parked behind the stage. And we get a police escort out, out of the venue to Logan Airport. Mm-hmm. And we get on a private jet. I don't even know where we're going. <laughs> all I know is I'm sitting on a private jet with the Rolling Stones. Mm-hmm. We end up in Birmingham, Alabama. So one day I went from Chicago to Boston to Birmingham, Alabama. Flew on a private jet with the Rolling Stones, shot a show, and I'm on tour with the greatest rock band in the world. Pretty exciting lifestyle is you could just get a call the night before Thanksgiving and oh, yeah. then be on the road for a month. It's a little nerve-wracking, but it's, it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool. The heavy metal bands, the hair metal bands, a couple times I've gone to shows and a band, band member will say, well, listen, you got about an hour before the show, go home drive your car back home, pack some clothes, and take a cab back here and just jump on the bus with us. And we're going to Detroit tonight and hang out with us for two or three days. And I'll find myself like three days later in Cleveland, <laughs> like, okay, you can go home now. And then I have to figure out how to get home. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I've got on a tour bus with an hour notice. 
Chicago-based Trope Publishing released Natkin, The Moment of Truth, earlier this month. Obviously, you've got this gigantic catalog of photos. Why put out a book now? Well, everybody kept on telling me I should do a book. And somebody introduced me to the publisher, and he said, yeah, let's do a book. And I said, okay, I'm not shooting that much anymore. There's not going to be a whole lot to add to this later on, so let's do it. You know, the rest is history. I'm sitting in your living room, and you've got these great photos. I would imagine the photos you choose to put in your own living room, it's kind of like your own little hall of fame of your favorites. Well, they're my favorite photos. They're also, every one of these photos is in the book. Yeah, and including the one on the snowboard in the corner, which is Ozzy Osbourne holding Randy Rhodes up in the air, which is the most famous picture I ever took. So I was going to ask, obviously this room is uh, your own little mini hall of fame, but having to choose the photos that would make it into the book, was that hard? Oh, you don't even want to know. It all happened during the pandemic. Right before the pandemic, the publisher came over here, and we we just started going through my archives, and we started alphabetically. And there's 4,300 names, 4,300 folders. And we started with ABBA, and we just started scrolling down the list. and, And he walked away. It took four afternoons to go through the whole list Mm -hmm. and uh he walked away with like 400 photos and then the pandemic hit and we had to do everything online on zoom calls and he laid everything out and then we'd go page by page and we'd fight over i don't like that picture put a different one in or i want that one over there i want that one over there and we slowly over i think it was 17 different layouts we slowly refined the book into where it should be Then I wrote all the little introductions. I got some people that I know. My friend Dave Hoekstra, who used to write for the Sun-Times, wrote the foreword to the book. I got this great essay in the back, I don't know if you saw it, in the back of the book, by Steve Gorman from the Black Crows. But I also have a second essay that he wrote where he talked about the first time he met me. The Black Crows met me, Uh did you see that? And you know, I just, I just started filling in. There were certain pictures that needed to be explained. How do you put a picture of Motorhead sitting in McDonald's without explaining why they were there? Or Joan Jett fronting a heavy metal band, a hair metal band. Mm -hmm. So I I had to write like little paragraphs to explain certain pictures in the book. And then uh, it all came together. Let's start with the cover. Why did you choose that, or how did that get chosen for the cover? Mick Jagger and Tina Turner. It's always, it's always the hardest thing in any book project is to figure out what's going to be on the cover. We narrowed it down to a bunch of possibilities, and we mocked up the cover, put them all up on the wall, and looked at them, and that one just jumped out. I mean, it's, a, it's one of my more spectacular photographs. I mean, I, that was taken at Live Aid in Philadelphia after, like, 70 bands in one day. They were the last uh-huh. band of the day. Okay. And I don't even remember taking the picture, but I must have been on autopilot because it came out pretty good. That was going to be my next question. If When you look through your photos, can you remember, is a lot of it a blur? No, I remember pretty much everything, almost yeah. everything. It's got to really be a long event. Live Aid in Philadelphia started at 11 in the morning, 70 bands in one day. And it, every band had like two or three songs. And I shot all 70 bands. It was everybody from Madonna to Ario Speedwagon, to, I mean, you name it. Ozzy Osbourne they were all there no food no breaks and at the end of the day I like I was hallucinating (laughs) I couldn't even I I didn't even remember holding a camera at that point but it was uh it was quite uh quite an interesting day so one of my favorite artists is David Bowie what was it like shooting him Well, David was right at the beginning of the whole you could only shoot three songs era. He's such a great showman. It was a shame to leave after three songs. The publicist was there that night, and he was a friend of mine. And he he says, well, you know, I know you want to shoot the whole show. So after three songs, I'm going to come in the photo pit and escort everybody out of there. So just get in the back of the crowd of photographers. And when we get out of the photo pit, just kind of fade into the audience for a couple songs and after all the other photographers leave just go back in the photo pit so so i went back in there and the picture that's in the book he's holding up a skull with a rose in its teeth and he saw me in the photo pit and he wasn't used to seeing photographers there during that part of the show uh-huh. i was the only one there little old me standing in front of him <laughs> so he posed for me
So the book is broken down also by by genre. So you have a whole jazz section and you get a great shot of Miles Davis and you write a little bit that he was infamous for kind of turning his back to the audience. So you had to wait to get that perfect shot. I won't leave until I get the shot. It's, it's either stubbornness or stupidity or perseverance. I don't know which one it is. And he walked out on stage and he took up his coat and hung it from the drum hardware. And then he played the entire show with his back to the audience. And it was at Park West and the floor in front of the stage is made out of hard hardwood oak flooring. And it was like kneeling on rocks. And he played for three hours. And I just waited for him to turn around. I'm not leaving till you turn around, dude. And he, uh, he finished the show, crowd's going crazy. And he walked over and he picked up his coat and he put it over his arm. And he turned around and he waved to the audience and I took one picture. That's one of the, my favorite pictures that I ever took. I couldn't walk for two days afterwards, but it was great. Did you get to meet all, the, all these artists that you photographed or sometimes were you just there to take pictures? Well, I'm always just there to take pictures, but sometimes if I'm doing a photo shoot with them, I get to meet them. If I'm not, I really don't have a lot of interest in meeting them. If I meet them, great. I've, I've met a lot of artists through touring with the Rolling Stones. Like Eric Clapton used to just pop up, just show up at yeah. shows. And he would always come backstage and play pool before the show. There was always a pool table back there. So I used to go back there and play pool with him just because he was there. Yeah. Uh, there was one night where I used to play with Keith a lot, play pool. Okay. And we were playing, and there was these two guys standing there. They challenged us to a game. <laughs> okay. This was in Los Angeles. And we started playing pool, and it was me and Keith Richards against Eric Clapton and David Bowie. <laughs> and I had to keep on asking myself, like, Is this real? Am I, am I really here, or is this a hallucination? But we also we had a party one night after one of the shows in Los Angeles, and I was sitting in the corner with a couple of people from the tour, and these two people came over and asked if they could sit with us, and it was Bruce and Patty Springsteen. And they sat and had dinner with us. And I, I've had plenty of opportunities to meet Springsteen, but I had no interest because what am I going to say to Bruce Springsteen? If I, go, if I go backstage after a show and there's 50 people waiting to meet him, and one at a time they walk up to him, what are they all going to say? They're all going to say, Dude, that was such a great show. So what am I going to say that's different than that? Like, oh, yeah, you weren't so great tonight. Maybe you should have played whatever. So I've had offers. People have said, you know, you want to come back and say hi to Bruce. Never had any opportunity or never had any interest until I met him, like, on equal footing. While meeting these legends of music wasn't high on Natkin's priority list, there was an artist he did want to have his picture taken with. So I'm, a, I'm very into blues. And because I'm from Chicago and you got to be into blues. And uh, there's a record label in Chicago named Alligator Records. And they're, they're the biggest blues label in the world, which as the owner of the company says, um, that makes him the tallest midget in the world. <laughs> and, you know, they're, he's a great guy. They're a great label. And I shoot a lot of album covers for him. And calls me up one day and he says, I'm going to bring Mavis Staples over to your house to shoot an album cover. And I've always been, I'm a soul fan and a blues fan. And Mavis is like probably the greatest soul voice that's ever lived. I had no idea what I was in for, but I set up a black background. He brings her over and he says, I want pictures of her singing. For three hours, she just sang to me in my living room. I had a private concert in my living room with Mavis Staples. Yeah. And at the end, it's the only time I've ever, the camera was on a tripod. It was all set up and the exposure was set and all that. And I said to Bruce from Alligator, I says, okay, I'm going to go and stand with Mavis. Just hit this button and take a picture. And I had my picture taken with her. And I've never, I've, I had a picture taken with Keith Richards once. And that's the only times I've ever had my pictures taken. So thinking about like how when you first got into this, it sounded like it was cool to get access to these concerts and you were taking pictures, but then just even throughout your career, are you able to like enjoy the, the show and listen to the music? That's a, that's a really good question. It's hard to answer that one. When I shoot the whole show, I don't shoot every minute of the show. I, I wait for, there's a photography term for it. It's called the decisive moment. And I wait for things to happen. Like... You can only take so many pictures. Let's say, for example, I'm shooting Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. 
I take pictures of everybody in the band, individual shots of everybody. And then I wait for moments where they get together. Like if Mike Campbell comes up next to Tom, I want to be ready to get a picture of the two of them together. When I'm waiting for something to happen, I'm watching the show. If I like the music, if, if it's like some thrash metal band, I'm enduring the show. But I'm still standing there for the entire show because you never know what's going to happen. Some of the things you were telling me about early in your career and just getting access, it reminded me of the, the movie Almost Famous. Have you seen that film? And is that... Oh, yeah. It's a story of my life. Yeah. Sort of. I mean, it was, it's a different story, but it's, it's the same thing. It's like if you, if you hang around enough, things are going to happen. That's acclaimed photographer Paul Natkin. His new photo book, Natkin, The Moment of Truth, is available in most places books are sold. You can find more information about the book at trope.com, and you can check out Paul's website over at natkin.net. And you are listening to the art section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary. We've officially entered autumn. A few weeks ago during our fall theater preview, I asked about some potentially darker, spookier productions that were programmed as we approach Halloween. And you both referenced Cocandy Productions' revival of Sweeney Todd. The Demon Barber of Fleet Street has taken up residence in the Chopin Theater basement for the next month and a half. And Carrie, I would imagine you've probably seen numerous versions of Sweeney Todd over the years. In your opinion, what makes for a successful Sweeney Todd? Well, you know, I actually haven't seen that many. But I will say, I can certainly understand if people would go into this a little skeptical because it generally does get larger productions. It's been on opera stages. It's been in, you know, very, uh, very high-profile productions. And I have to say that I did find the intimacy and the clamminess of this particular outing quite compelling, it just in terms of that physical setting. But Jonathan, you're Mr. Sondheim. I, I think well, you might have more insight into some of the changes and some of the things. <laughs> that that uh, that you that you've experienced with this production versus others. I have, because I've seen eight or nine productions of this over many years, including the original production on Broadway. And I also have a note, a very short note from Stephen Sondheim himself when he was just beginning to work on this, and uh, it turned out to be something completely different than what he said <laughs> in his note. But but uh, <laughs> so it was a romantic comic romp, right? When it first was well, starting. Well, I do. Out. I I I like to kid. In fact, I I, I sent it out to. Uh, to Gary before the broadcast this morning, and I and I called this Stephen Sondheim's joyous, happy, family-friendly musical about a jolly serial killer <laughs> whose victims are turned into tasty meat pies by his laughing lady love. Well, of course. <laughs> uh, I expect this musical is well-known to most fans of musical theater, and certainly all Sondheim fans. It's set in 1840s London. It tells of a barber who's been falsely condemned to prison by a venal judge who then rapes the barber's beautiful young wife. The barber escapes from prison 15 years later and takes his revenge not only on the corrupt judge, but on a host of other victims, most of them, not quite all of them, but most of them as guiltless as Sweeney Todd himself. This Sweeney, as uh, you know, Gary said, and uh, Carrie, as you pointed out, is very, very intimate. It's staged in the round by the Cocandy Productions' artistic director, Derek Van Barham, greatly assisted by his musical director, Nick Sula. There's a cast of 16 on stage and a four-piece orchestra of piano, cello, and two woodwind players. And for me, they all earn high marks for musical values. And... Um, you know, Gary's lead question was, "What do what do you what do you need uh, to to make a successful production?" Sondheim writes always challenging music, complex music, mm -hmm. and you need to be able to perform the music to a high standard, the musical values, 
and this production, I think, nails it. Uh, veteran off-loop performers Kevin Webb and Caitlin Jackson are very, very strong as Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett. Carrie, you and I have seen both of them before. Uh, Absolutely, uh, like yeah. Black Button Eye Productions <laughs> and other companies, and we like their work. And um, in addition to them, I think audiences probably are going to pick their own favorites sure. from <laughs> among the supporting cast, which were very strong across the board with really nice uh, voices. Right. Um, one of the things I think was great about this production, and you referenced it being in the round, which I don't know how many of our listeners have been to the Chopin basement. It's a, it's a charming, delightful, but often visually challenging space because it's a basement. There are support beams. So over the years, various people have learned to work with it. David Cromer's very famous production of Our Town several years ago for the hypocrites helped put him on the map on the national level, certainly. Um, but that, by doing this in the round, I felt that we were all implicated in the story and i think that's really the genius of this kind of staging we feel like we're right there in this as i mentioned it's sort of clammy it is a basement uh you know dirty foul nihilistic and i'm saying this in all the best senses of these words uh environment that we are witnesses but we're also somehow we are part of this world that sweeney has just come to hate because of all the things that he has endured, because of the losses, because of the injustices. So for me, there were points where I thought, oh my gosh, I hope he doesn't make eye contact with me, because he may just decide it's time for me to have a shave and a haircut. You know? <laughs> and I, as you referenced, John, I was like many of his victims are not people who've actually wronged him in any sense. They're just people who don't have people. They, they're safe marks because they're drifters. They're lost souls, too. And, and, and by all of us sort of being sitting there, all looking at each other, you know, there's also a very nice little rotating disc. The stage actually does move within us, I should say. I could say that in a less confusing way, but I hope you know what I mean. And I just really found that to be a, a key component to my enjoyment of the show. In addition to, as you said, the wonderful, you know, the wonderful voices, particularly for Kevin Webb and Caitlin Jackson. Uh, Sweeney Todd is a very powerfully written show. Mm-hmm. It's not just sometimes superb music and lyrics, famously so, famously superb, but also it has a very, very tight plot structure based on the rising action of old old-fashioned melodrama mm-hmm. a very tight plot structure and very well delineated characters each of whom gets at least one and sometimes more than one a sharp character song that that helps define who they are it's really complex musically and dramatically but it's nearly fail-safe for a competent cast which this one certainly is and a director who grasps the show's values, which you've just talked about, and I think Derek Von Barham does that. It's not a big dance show, but particularly when you do it in the round, (laughs) Van Barham has added several effective, not necessarily dance, but movement flourishes as the choreographer as well as the director of the show. Yeah, one of the things people have asked me since I've seen it is like, well, you know, do they, where's that shoot? There's a beautiful shoot where, you know, they send the bodies down to Mrs. Lovett's basement to make, you know, make the pies. Obviously, we don't have those kinds of effects here. I found instead some of the smaller effects they brought in to be very, to be very compelling. Uh, there's recurring themes of empty picture frames. Again, this idea of who is seen, who is not seen, who is implicated. We don't actually see Sweeney's deadly implement, the razor, until the very end, and it's not in his hand at the end. And I thought that's a really interesting, cunning choice. I won't tell more than that. And I found that this was a really smart way. You know, this is not big budget. This is not lyric opera. This is not Broadway. But by kind of having this really well thought out idea of some of the themes of the play and finding a very effective, as you mentioned, Jonathan, movement touches, small prop touches, even the environment. And if you've been to the Chopin, they, a lovely, they have lovely collections of, you know, sort of kitschy art and clocks and things all over the place. And that, that sort of carries over in a creepy way into the set for Sweeney Todd. You know, there's little collections of lamps and uh, dolls and, you know, things. If you just sort of look around you, you, you may yeah. notice, you know, some things that make it just make you go, hmm, I wonder what that's about. So. You know, the Chopin is a bit of a, let's call it, goth. Kind of yes, and yes. And again, in, I say yeah. that in the best possible sense yeah, of the word. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, I like this production as well, but you have touched on something that, for me, is a little more problematical. I like the production, but I have a few reservations, having seen 
as I said up front, eight or nine Sweeney Todd's over the years. Now, it's always a challenge to bring furniture and hand props on mm-hmm. and off stage when a production is in the round. And so this production mimes almost everything. Sweeney's razor is mimed until the very, very last moment. All the barbering utensils, the covers and the towels and the shaving basins, they're all mimed. The hot meat pies that are so vital to the plot are mimed. The pistol is mimed. Now, all of this is fine for those who know the show well, but it's not as fine for those who do not know the show. And one has Mm -hmm. to assume... You know, there'll be some newbies who come right. to the show. And ditto the famous Sweeney's famous trick barber chair, which really adds so much to the physical realization. Now, along with one other in the round Sweeney I saw some years ago, this production convinces me that this show is not so well suited to in the round staging. It's not that that the, the folks at Cocandy Productions have done something wrong they have dealt, as you said, with the issues and problems in, in rather creative ways. But I think this is a show that probably is better served uh, in a traditional proscenium uh, stage or a, a stage where the audience is all on, on one side. Yeah, I can see that. I do think, though, that yeah. there is some, as I said, there's like a a sense that we are kind of being all gathered for this, you know, attend to the oh, tale. Yeah. It's almost, I almost, you know, I, I, I almost felt like they're all going to have little flashlights that will come out under their faces as they start telling us this ghostly tale and we're all kind of huddling together about about what happens with Sweeney. And again, I have to say, I think it's just it's such a great, not that they're breakthrough roles because they've been performing, you know, for so long. For Caitlin Jackson and Kevin Webb, these are, I, I would say, career high points for me to see them in these roles. And so I'm really happy that for that reason that Kakandi decided to take a chance on this. We should also add, I think, that because this is a very intimate space, when the audience is on four sides, it's we call it in the round, but it's actually <laughs> in the square. Right. But, uh, yeah, the audience is on four sides, and yet the whole total audience is, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's certainly less than 150 people. Mm-hmm. So it's very intimate, and the singers are not amplified, except there are two hanging mics uh, among mm-hmm. the lights, over the center of the stage, that when the actors are right below them, they do amplify the voices a bit. But otherwise, the singers are not amplified, and they're singing all over and sometimes in the corridors. And they need to be more careful about diction. Not yeah. volume, yeah. they can be heard without any problem, but diction. They constantly need to be aware that half their audience is looking at their backs every time they sing because of the in-the-square configuration. Sometimes lyrics, they're often rapid-fire patter. They need more careful enunciation. And that was my other little pick about an, an otherwise uh, show that, that really sold me. All right. Co-Candy Productions' Sweeney Todd is running through November 6th. And before we wrap up, I think, Carrie, you have a, a pick this week? Uh, my pick this week is uh, the Goodman Theater. It's on their main stage, Clyde's, by Lynn Nottage, who is certainly no stranger to, to uh, Goodman audiences. This is a, a sequel of sorts, but not really, to her Pulitzer Prize-winning play, Sweat, which was at the Goodman a few years ago. Like that play, uh, Clyde's is set in Reading, Pennsylvania. It's kind of dealing with a group of people who are, you know, desperately trying not to fall off the lowest rungs of the socioeconomic ladder. The, na- the name of the play comes from the woman who owns the sandwich shop, and if you're thinking the bear, you're not far off. There is a little bit of that uh, Chicago uh, Chicago sandwich shop show energy to this play. But Clyde's is a truck stop, and they serve sandwiches, and Clyde herself is a former convict who only hires convicts, but not really out of a sense of altruism. She's really doing this because she knows she'll have control over the, you know, these people don't have very many options, so they're going to be, you know, a little bit easier for her to run around and run ragged. She's a termagant. She is not a very nice person, at least as we see her, but I have to point out that on, at least at Monday night's opening, uh, Danielle Davis, longtime Chicago actor who had been understudying the role, stepped into the lead and, for my money, really knocked it out of the park. This is not as heavy a play by any means as Sweat, although one of the characters who was a part of the climactic uh, moments in Sweat comes back uh, to work in the kitchen here. But I think it's 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 a part partly a slice of life workplace comedy. 
And it's also, for my money, a nice departure from some of the heavier work that Nottage has been known for in the past. Here she's just, I think, really celebrating, you know, working people and their dignity and their attempts to find meaning in what they do. Here it's about finding meaning in making the best sandwiches they can. Sort of the counterpart to, you know, Clyde's you know, nearly satanic you know, hold over them is Montrellis, who is, uh, I think they call him the sandwich sensei. And it's, he's, uh, he's really a believer in sort of the nurturing power of food and in the power of the people around him to really step up and make their dream sandwiches or their dreams in some other form come true. It's not the heaviest show you'll ever see. It is if you'll pardon, you know, the phrase, a light bite. But um, I think if you're a fan of Lynn Nottage, uh, you definitely owe it to yourself to check this one out because it's uh, it's an interesting departure from some of the things that she's done in the past. I think she's always a, has a great wit about her. But I think this is, of the plays of hers that I've seen, this is the one that is most consciously working in a comic vein. I happened to see it also on Monday night, and I'm not going to say a lot about to just to amplify what you've said, uh, Carrie, but I, I agree with you. I had a very good time. I thought the cast was splendid. Danielle Davis, uh, apparently she's, she's had been doing several performances of it, so this was not just, you know, at the last minute stepping in, and she did a, a fine job. I remember I took a note during it. I said, this is a play about the zen of the sandwich. Yes, yes. And Lynn Nottage in the program note says, a truck stop sandwich shop, a liminal space, a liminal yes. space, a transitional space, and certainly these, the four... Uh, sandwich, uh, you know, line cooks mm-hmm. are transitioning between the world of being a, a convict in, in, incarcerated and and the, the real, large, real world outside and wrestling with a, the host of issues, largely in comic and positive ways against, uh, as you said, a boss who may be the devil incarnate. <laughs> uh, Maybe literally so, but I won't say more than that. I had a good time. I second your your recommendation of Clyde's. Okay, two recommendations for Clyde's, and that's running at Goodman Theater through October 9th. And with that, Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. We'll see you next week. Oh, you're welcome, Carrie. You're welcome indeed. Let's go outside and watch the leaves change colors. <laughs> <laughs> it's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's a new life for me. Yeah, it's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's a new life for me. And I'm feeling good. I'm Gary Zydek. You're tuned into the arts section. There have been numerous leadership changes within the Chicago theater community over the past few years. Now the Umbrella Organization, dedicated to promoting and advocating for the local theater industry, will also welcome a new leader. Marissa Lynn Ford was recently introduced as the League of Chicago Theater's new executive director. She takes over the position at a unique period of time in Chicago theater history. For one, we're emerging from a pandemic where all theater organizations are dealing with the realities of operating in a post-lockdown world. And two, there's a lot of new faces in leadership roles. Many of the city's most prominent theater companies have made leadership changes over the past few years. Established in 1979, the League of Chicago Theaters has been a constant source of support for local theaters for over 40 years. Ford says that won't change, and she's excited to get to work. I recently caught up with the Chicago native to talk about her new position. Obviously, uh, you must have an, an interest in theater. I saw, I think you co-majored in uh, in acting when you were in college. Is theater something that's always been part of your life? Oh, absolutely. I, I grew up amongst performers and church plays, and most of my family can sing, and that gene did not pass on to me. So. <laughs> But yeah, I've always, you know, loved the um, performance in sharing people's stories. So my entire family does it. That's, you know, how I grew up in learning and how we pass on tradition and history. So when it was time to decide on a career path, I I definitely knew I wanted to do theater and performing arts. um, And I knew I wanted to kind of curate those stories. I didn't know it was it was called, you know, producing at the time. I just knew those are the two things I wanted to do. So I went to school for international business 
and for theater <laughs> because I was like, I'm going to do something with both of these one day. Right. And you're like, yeah, I guess the perfect mix of uh, two areas of study for what you wanted to do. Then, yeah. uh, then you came to, I mean, you're from Chicago uh, and then you came back after college was, did you know you wanted to, to stay in the Chicago theater scene? Oh yeah, I definitely wanted um, to to be here in Chicago. I think you know, obviously people look at New York um, often too. But I, I had done some work in, in interning here and wanted to grow here. I actually had a decision when I graduated. I could either go work for a bank um, or I could uh, come here to Chicago and intern. Um, I'm sorry, that, that was the summer before I graduated, but I could either do that or come to Chicago and intern, and I chose to come to Chicago and intern for a theater company instead. So I definitely, that has definitely been part of my passion. The Chicago community, I think, is very supportive of new artists who are coming out and, and people who want to explore and who want to work, and it's a great network of family, really. So I know the the past several years you've been with um, the Goodman Theater. What were your thoughts when the, the League of Chicago Theater's executive director opportunity opened up? Well, yeah, you know, I had I through the through working at the Goodman, through working in theater, I've had the opportunity to you know know Deb and um, the work that she has been doing as part of the league, and so I thought. It, it sounded interesting when I first heard about it and, you know, what a, what a legacy to follow behind. But also just going back to, you know, that college decision of wanting to do things on a more global scale, wanting to help people in my own community and uplift artists. But the idea of being able to, instead of concentrating that on one area, one theater, being able to do that across the city of Chicago um, it was very exciting. It's slightly scary, right? But it's very exciting um, to be able to think about how I can help do that, how the league can help make an impact um, across the board and in a way where I can touch my own community that I grew up in, but also other communities. So it was it was a it was a great opportunity, I think, for for anybody. And I think the question was, do I want to answer to a whole bunch of theater producers? <laughs> uh, you know, and, and you know the time we're in now coming out of the time we're in now like it's a big moment and a big opportunity so just wanting to do it the right way and i'm glad i'm able to do that now sure i've had deb on the the show a few times over the years but you know for maybe my listeners or just that person who goes to the theater they might not even like understand what the the league does i'm just curious how do you view the the league's role in the in the chicago theater landscape yeah definitely when i i think of the league i think of you know to lead is to serve and so the league is really about making sure that we're uplifting the great impact that theater has on our community across Chicago. We advocate for our theaters um, with the city, with with other organizations. Um, we do audience development and engagement to make sure that the stories that are being shared on stage, everyone has the opportunity to hear those. You know, we do ticket sales uh, and, and discounted ticketing to make sure people have access to the theater and can hear the stories. So we're all around, you know, advocating for our theater artists, for our theaters and in our different communities. And then when I think about, you know, the league overall, what really has been coming to mind is that theater is for everybody. In riding in Ubers and, and having conversations when people realize they're they're taking me or dropping me off at a theater or picking me up from opening night or whatever it might be. People love to share their story about the first time that they've encountered being in a theater or having a performance and where it was. And um, I think that's what the league is about, is making sure that people have that opportunity for that first encounter, that people have the opportunity to support and learn about the artists on stage and the stories that are being told. Um, and that's what I want to continue to uplift as we move forward. And then it feels like this uh, particular moment, this period of time feels unique. There's been so many leadership changes in Chicago area theaters and new people coming into to big roles. Any any thoughts on that? 
So, yeah, I think it's a, a great opportunity for us to support um, those people. I think another part of what the league does is that professional development and that collaboration among theater producers around new leaders and artists. Um, I think there is definitely a lot of opportunity there to collaborate and just get people in the room and networking. I think after being in solidarity <laughs> in our own homes for so long, as these changes are happening, it's good to be able to um, bring people together and collaborate and network in that way. So I hope that we can support those new leaders in the way that they need and um, as they're coming out with their own ideas of, you know, what it means to run a theater in this age, that we're able to help support them with the resources they need. And then I know you're just, uh, you haven't even officially started in your new role yet, so I know a lot's still to come, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on just coming out of the pandemic. Does it feel like audiences are returning to to in-person theater? You know, I think we're seeing, um, I think we're seeing audiences ready to come back because being at the Goodman, I was able to, you know, be in that first audience coming back which was outdoors we did uh fanny in the parks and so many people came out in their lawn chairs and to hear that wonderful story and i think that just shows that you know there's there's all these digital things there's netflix and things like that but there's nothing like hearing a story being shared live on stage and being in that moment in that atmosphere with those people at that time And I think people appreciate that about the art. And so I think they're definitely ready. I think after being inside so long, there's, you know, summertime Chicago, you got to enjoy it while you can. So people have taken opportunity to get outside, but audiences are definitely coming back and growing. I think, you know, with some of the things going around with monkeypox that came out and things like that, people are still being cautious and weary. But as we continue to move forward, as we continue to watch the numbers go down and and things become safe and solutions that people are ready and willing to come back. And then in a, in a longer term sense, if we were to talk again, uh, you know, next year around this time, what do you hope we're talking about? You know, I think in a long term sense, I want everybody to have been engaged and impacted by theater in Chicago in some way. I think I I would really want to uplift the league and what we do, but also um, making sure that everybody in Chicago is aware of the magic of theater and story sharing and that they've engaged or at least um, heard about, (laughs) you know, their local theater communities and the work that they're doing and overall the theater in Chicago. So, um, I think that's that's kind of where I would hope to be long term is everybody in Chicago is talking about theater. Marissa Lynn Ford is the new executive director of the League of Chicago Theaters. Congratulations and thanks for making time to talk with me. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it and I'm excited to get started. That's Marissa Lynn Ford, the new executive director of the League of Chicago Theaters. You can learn more about the organization at leagueofchicagotheaters.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening. This is the uh, last time I can play this song for a year. <laughs> <laughs>